Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. One of my most prized possessions is a coffee table book entitled Boring Postcards. It's about 120 ridiculously banal postcards. Um, Things that really should never have been captured on any camera for any reason. Uh, and it really is truth in advertising. Most of them were taken in the 1950s, and you know, there's a postcard of a new parking lot in Columbus. Uh, there's the grand opening of a meatpacking plant uh, in Chicago. And, uh, and there's also a local gas station that was selling hot dogs. And there was a field of soybeans. I mean, mind-blowing stuff, really earth-shattering. Uh, but I love the book, and I love talking about the book whenever um, people have come over and looked at it, because uh, it, it always leads to fascinating conversations about how much of life is actually like the postcards that are in that little book, right? Not fantastical, but rather dull and unimpressive. Uh, but th- that is, in fact, the, the majority of our lives, uh, you know, are, aren't necessarily terribly tragic, but also not extremely celebratory. In fact, much of life is simply inglorious, inglorious. But I'm wondering if you've ever, in the midst of life, really prayed for or expected a glorious moment to invade the inglorious nature of life. You really thought it would happen for you, you know, a little spark. You know, you would see a little bit of the ineffable, a little bit of the, the creator's immediacy in some situation. Maybe you've done that in church. You know, you go to this church and everybody's singing, you know, to the heavens and they're all really into it and, and they clearly are having something going on inside or you think they do, but inside you feel like, you know, dead as a doornail. Uh, or maybe it's, um, I, I was talking to a relative of mine who went to a therapist for the first time and it was a very big step for him. And he really did need a breakthrough. He needed a breakthrough, and he risked it in his later life to go and see this young therapist, and he was pouring out his heart to this therapist. And then uh, eventually the therapist um, had to go uh, get the, um, figure out billing, and he put down his little notebook that he was using the whole time the therapy session was going on. And the whole time my relative was speaking, the therapist was drawing Christmas trees. Lots of Christmas trees. And he's like, well, I'm never going back to you. (laughs) You Um, But he expected a breakthrough. He didn't get a breakthrough. No glory for him. Or maybe it's a a wedding day, you know, because I do a billion weddings all the time, which I like. I like. But there's always a little bit of drama. Not always. Often a little bit of drama. Right? You expect your wedding day to be like this miracle. And it's going to be heavenly. And it's about Christ and the church. And I love him. And he loves me. And your Romeo and Juliet sands the death. You know, it's like your moment, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, your mother who has a peanut allergy, like, eats the wrong cookie and has to go to the hospital, and then everybody's freaking out, and you, yeah, I mean, you understand? You expected a little glory. You didn't get your glory because of the cookie and the peanut allergy. <laughs> or maybe it's a deathbed scene. I was thinking about my grandfather the other day when he was a challenging man, but when he died, and I was there with him when he died, I thought that he would sort of be nice, 
to everybody who was around him. And like, it was like gun smoke. You ever seen gun smoke? Like when they're on their deathbed, it's like, Ethan, I give the farm to you. You know, or I've always loved you. You know, something. You know, he just asked for ice chips and then he died. I'm like, that's it? I was expecting a little glory, no glory in that hospital room, yeah? So, so much of our experience is inglorious. Even when we expect a little something, we're not always given that little something, you know? And so the reason I'm talking about this is because this is the last day in the season of Epiphany or the last Sunday in Epiphany. And you may remember that Epiphany means glorious appearing, something supernatural that kind of lights up the world. And during this season, uh, we read in the Bible about the early scenes from Jesus's life in which God glows and glimmers and shines through. Lots of interesting readings along the way, you know where Jesus, little Jesus, goes into the temple and he's smarter than the Pharisees, that's where God shines. Before that, the Magi visit the infant Christ and they understand that he's uh, he's, um, something of heaven with them. That's where God shines. And then Jesus goes and gets baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and the the Father speaks to him in, in words of affirming love and that's where God shines. And and then there's water to wine, you know, the first big public miracle, and, that, and God shines in that moment. But, but the epiphany season, while it includes many little epiphanies, this today is the big one. This is the massive epiphany within the epiphany season. Because infant Jesus with Magi, child Jesus at the temple, Jesus at Cana of Galilee did not glow like neon. He looked just like you and me. But in this situation, the transfiguration, we see a neon sign that displays Jesus's divine nature. And so I'm going to be speaking about Matthew 17 today. I'm going to be talking about three things. I'm going to talk about inglorious valleys, the radiating face, and companions of glory. Inglorious valleys, so important, because the context in which the transfiguration takes place is almost entirely dismal and terrible. The transfiguration is like a steep mountain peak between two very deep, jagged valleys. Immediately preceding the transfiguration in Matthew 16 uh, is one of the most um, complicated confrontations in the New Testament. Jesus finally wants his disciples to name names. He wants them to get very real and very raw, so he asks them a question, who do you say that I am? Peter, inspired by the heavens, says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, you're correct, that is true, this was revealed to you by heaven. And now, Peter, since you got my job title right, let me inform you regarding my job description of what the Christ must do, which is be obliterated and humiliated publicly in a ghastly execution. That's what Christ means. And then Peter flips out, and Jesus calls him Satan, and it's just not a good day. Okay, Uh, so that uh, shifts to the transfiguration. And then immediately after the transfiguration, where Jesus is glowing on the mountain, immediately after it, uh, Jesus uh, um, returns to the same themes and tells his disciples right after he's done with the mountain, remember the Son of Man has to be tortured to death. Another inglorious valley right after um, that high place. What's my point? Uh, My point is this. Um, What we call mountaintop experiences are fairly rare for us in life. But we have a companion who also experienced them as rare. 
His name is Jesus. He did not have a mountaintop experience every day of his life. In fact, this mountaintop experience, the high point of his public ministry, uh, or at least his ministry with the disciples, came between two very, very difficult conversations. And so we have to just simply note the inglorious valleys that accompany true spiritual life. Because if you believe that a conversion to Christ or baptism in water or certain gifts of the Spirit or certain theological breakthroughs or you tossing away one theology and adopting another or joining some fictitious perfect church that's existed since the time of the apostles, if you think that that's really going to do it for you, it will for like two years. And then you're going to have humanity back and yourself back and all your problems back. Because the truth is we don't live on that epiphanal mountaintop constantly. We often live in inglorious valleys. That's something about the context. Now I'm going to move on to radiating face. The radiating face. This is verse 1. Please read it along with me. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, notice a few things. One, Jesus takes witnesses to its transfiguration. He doesn't do it alone. Why? And why does he take more than one? Because in the Old Testament, two or three witnesses are required to be able to legitimately profess something that actually occurred. So they can publicly regard the event as trustworthy. Um, But they witness something new. They've never seen this version of Jesus. Jesus, the Jewish carpenter prophet, um, morphs into this neon formation, right, where he starts shining with a light that is almost so bright nobody can look at it. Um, And in this moment, what he's doing, I want to say, is revealing the face of the God of Israel. Um, They're having an epiphany. That is, they're seeing into the glorious appearance of God. Um, By the way, the whole notion of being able to look look upon God or the desire to or the inability to is a deeply Jewish idea. It's very deeply embedded in Jewish history. Um, This this idea that people wish to see God's glory but also are prevented from it because to see God's glory would mean a death sentence is pretty clear in the Old Testament because God's glory was always understood to be two things, lovely and lethal at the same time. So beautiful that it was deadly. Uh, Now, um, so what is glory? Uh, Glory is, uh, is God's holy radiance that fully expresses itself without any hindrances or blockages. And so when that's the case, if you have something that is maximally good, maximally just, maximally loving, all of it, all of God's attributes with no uh, hindrances, that actually becomes a very dangerous thing for people that uh, in many parts of their nature have rebelled against that same God, right? Because it exposes us for who we are because it shows us by the very radiance of the fact that we are not like him. Uh, And that can be a very dangerous thing. This is why, for example, when the glory of God shone on Mount Sinai, Moses was allowed up there. But guess what happened to anyone else who even touched the mountain? They died. It was like that poor dude who was just trying to straighten out the Ark of the Covenant when it was, you know, it was rickety on a cart. And he's like, I can help. I'm going to help. And he touches the Ark of the Covenant and zap, you know, he's dead. What did Moses want on the mountain? He's like, I just want to see you. 
And there's something sweet about that. He wants to know God more fully. He wants to really see the one who's been speaking to him for years and has invaded his mind, his heart, his dreams. He wanted to see. And God says, yeah, you can't look upon my face and live. And so what does God do? He allows Moses to peer through this crevice and see afterglow. He sees glow, but not the face of God. But what's remarkable about this particular passage, when Jesus shines, when Jesus shines with this glory, he demonstrates God's non-lethality. Glory through the mediation of Jesus' humanity is no longer lethal. When glory expresses itself through the Son of God in his full humanity, it becomes warm, inviting, and home. You may know, though, uh, that whenever Moses had that event occur, where he starts shy, where he sees God's afterglow, what happens to Moses' face? Do you remember? He starts to glow. He gets a little neon, yeah? But it's not his own light. He's not producing it. He's just experiencing the after effects of a close contact with God. What's interesting about Jesus, though, he's not reflecting anybody else's light. He is the source of the glory. He's the source of the glory. And so he's radiating with divine light, just like God did on Sinai. Yeah? But because it's coming through the human face of Jesus, the mediator, the one who stands between God's justice and our sin, it's safe now. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, For God said, Let light shine out of darkness. And he has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. In Jesus God's glory, the radiating face, is no longer threatening. It's home. Um, and so we have inglorious valleys, a radiating face, and lastly, companions of glory. There's a little resurrection here, you know. Verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, I love so much about what I just read, but let me speak about the first bit because it's not as funny as the second bit. Um, the two men, right? Moses, 13th century BC, Elijah, 9th century BC. I want you to notice they're still alive, right? Don't pass that up, they, you know. So they exist and they're speaking to Jesus. Um, and, uh, and I think they're very good candidates for a conversation with a transfigured Christ for four reasons. I shall be brief. Um, both Moses and, and Elijah encountered glory on a mountaintop. In fact, in the same place. They were both at Mount Sinai when they encountered the glory cloud of God. Second, both Moses and Elijah heard the audible voice of God. Moses heard the booming, thundering voice on Sinai, and Elijah heard it too, right? It's sometimes mistranslated as a still, small voice. The better translation is a pulverizing, um, crushing sound. But he heard it too. And then, and then the third thing, Moses and Elijah had strange departures from the world. Moses died, but they never found his body. Elijah ascended into heaven, you know, via the whirlwind and the fiery chariot. But I think most importantly why they're significant is that Moses and Elijah are the highest human authorities in the Old Testament, the most central human figures. Moses, of course, is the leader of the Exodus, but also he's the legal man. He's the one who brought down the law. Right? And Elijah is the one who represents the prophets, all of the people who uh, were confronting Israel when they failed to keep the covenant. 
But uh, this is what's happening. Jesus is having a conversation with these two men. And Luke's gospel tells us what they're talking about. They're talking about his forthcoming, Jesus' forthcoming exodus or his departure or his death. Now, what's great about this scene in so many ways is Peter's response to it, right? Peter gets a little hysterical, but let us not blame him if we saw the same thing. We would probably either be dumbstruck or say stupid things too. But he wants to build shelters. He wants to build shelters. Why does he want to keep the moment, to hold on to the moment? I have a theory. You can weigh it in your own heads. It's just a theory. But remember, just previous to this passage, um, Jesus tells his disciples that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, right? And Elijah, or at least the kind of sense of Elijah, appears in the form of John the Baptist, who calls people to repentance. But that Elijah's talk about him coming to announce the day of the Lord, and now we see Elijah risen right in front of us, and Peter might be thinking, might be, the resurrection has finally occurred. The day of the Lord is here. The dead are raised. Jesus is visibly glorified before us. Like, this is the end. We made it. We made it. So let's hold on to the moment. It could be that. But the neon glory, as we know, didn't linger, and neither did Jesus' companions, right? They all faded away. Moses vanished like a ghost, as did Elijah, and Jesus stopped glowing. Um, It couldn't stick around. Even if Peter wanted to hold on to the moment, the moment of resurrection and glorification couldn't have happened yet. Why? Because Jesus didn't finish his work yet. He had more to do to secure that future forever, namely bleed, be devastated, and rise again physically to begin God's new world. And that hadn't happened yet. The work was not done. At best, Peter and his companions were given a sampling of the future. So those are two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, but yet there's one final witness, a very important witness, who did not appear, of course, physically, but it was a very vocal father who says in verse 5, in the midst of this whole scene. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Notice that the father here speaks the very or nearly the very same words that he did at Jesus's own baptism. You're my son in whom I well pleased. Why repeat them now? Why at this point does God have to repeat the same refrain? I think it has to do with our contextual points. This moment was a pivotal moment in Jesus's ministry where he starts announcing his death and he stays on that theme again and again and again until it happens. This was the time, chapter 16 and 17, when the ministry of Jesus grows decidedly dark. It moves, it shifts in a great way. Um, And I think the, the father is being very deliberate at speaking these reaffirming words right now to say to his followers who are freaking out because of that death announcement, listen to him still. Listen to him still. He is not off the plot. He is not wrong. Remember, people, even very faithful people, can second-guess the Messiah. John the Baptist's disciples did the same thing. When Jesus wasn't behaving in a radicalized manner, they got upset and, and they asked, are you the one or is there somebody else we should be waiting for? But the Father speaks those words right now at this dark moment saying, this is still my son. And when the father says, listen to him, I think he has a specific matter in mind. That is not just listen to Jesus in general when he speaks about the kingdom of God or mercy or ethics. That's important too. But listen, especially as he now begins to speak about his death. Listen to him. 
So th that's a few things about inglorious valleys, the radiating face, and those companions in glory. Let me give you this now brief applicatory word regarding valleys and mountains. I want to talk about valleys in our own lives for a minute and also mountaintops. Valleys. Well, we're about to enter Lent. Lent is a valley time, a time in which we visit deep, dark places in our own lives where we stop looking at our neighbors and blaming them for all of our problems, but instead look into our own souls, the dismal places that are clearly self-absorbed or self-destructive. In the midst of that kind of soul-searching, friends, we suffer. I want to be completely honest with you. If you start doing that work with God, where you say, I really want to know what's wrong with me so that I can stop hurting myself and hurting people and offending you. If you really want to ask that question, you will get answers. And the answers that you get will be, will lack a certain comfort, let's say. Pain and suffering can be part of this Lenten season, if we're honest. Um, and yet, I think Lent cures us of a, of a diseased theology. The diseased theology goes something like this. God, or God's glory, God's immediacy, is only associated with the sunny peaks of our lives. And God's absence, uh, what Luther called the deus abscondus, the hidden God, is only uh, is seen in our personal pain. In other words, when we're hurting, God walks out of the room, and it's evidence that he's not with us, and we must have made some mistake that caused him to flee away. But friends, um, what we learn from this passage and its context is that Jesus lives in all of our soul's geographic contexts. All of them. What do we learn about Jesus from the Gospels? He is Jesus on the hilltop as his face radiates with glory, and he is still Jesus when he's left for dead upon a splintered throne and cries out in forsaken pain. Still Jesus, right? We may, after this service, feel the sun, or we may feel the valley of the shadow of death, but we have a companion who has already walked this way and will not leave you in a valley and will not abandon you on a mountaintop. You will never be orphaned. You are completely and permanently conjoined to Jesus Christ by faith. So that's something about valleys. And so when we enter Lent together, let's remember we've got a friend in this business. You know, we don't do this alone. We have each other, but ultimately we have the Christ that animates all of us. Second thing, something about mountains. That is the experience of glory. While we haven't seen Jesus transfigured, we do know that he's secured for us a rich future in glory to the degree that our risen state is referred to by the New Testament as our glorification. Jesus will take you in your mortal body and give you a glorified body. He ensures when all things are fulfilled, complete healing, soothed relationships, mental clarity, unbroken hearts, and sinlessness. That brand of glory is most certainly your destiny. But where do we encounter God's glory now? Because this world has not been abandoned. So where is the ultimate source of glory now? Well, there are lots of little bits of glory here and there. I can name several of them. Whenever the scriptures talk about the fact that the heavens declare the glory of God, when you look at nature, uh, one of my relatives says, look, I can't do your church thing, Ethan, because there's just so much kneeling and the, so much talking, Ethan. You do so much talking. I'm like, thank you. Bless you. Um, uh, but he says, but nature is my church. I go outside and I take hikes and I see things and there's something about me that resonates to that. He, now, we can criticize that all the, all the day long as incomplete or whatever. He's not wrong, though right, in seeing what he sees, yeah? 
But I've also seen it in this place. During the peace, in the service, that's the time when if you have like messed it up with somebody in this room, you go and apologize to them. Very often we just use it as a cheerful way to greet our neighbors, which is fine too. Um, but I've had people in this room apologize to each other during that peace. What is that? The glory of God in miniature, demonstrating itself in reconciled relationships, yeah? Whenever you are quickened to your sin and, and recant it, that's the glory of God. Whenever you're able to realize that this whole gospel thing that we've been about here in this church for 16 years might actually apply to you, that's the glory of God, yeah? So the glory of God is speckled throughout the world, but there's one place that you could almost surely see reflections of it, and that is in the word and in the sacraments. Because we've been given a, 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 an opportunity as Christians, to share these things together. Um, by the way, the goal of preaching here at Grace is to reveal the one in whom the glory abides, right? That's what we want to offer you week after week is a clearer view of Jesus, the Jesus who gave his all for you. So we don't want to preach the Christian. We want to preach the Christ here. I'm not trying to give you five steps toward a healthy marriage. I hope you have great healthy marriages, but here we have to get deeper than that. We have to get to Jesus, right? And so um, we proclaim Christ here, but also the sacraments proclaim Christ, right? The sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion proclaim Christ. When we baptize people tonight, there is glory in the act. What does baptism say? What does it reveal? How is this a, a Holy Spirit moment that reveals something to us? Here's what it reveals. When these people get baptized tonight, here's what the water means as they get dunked. It means, to the baptismal candidate, but but also reverberates towards us. I am not defined by my worst thoughts, my feelings, and my um, most forbidden actions. The things that I have done and left undone do not define me because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yeah? It's about Jesus. And we see baptismal glory in the fact that baptism is a communicating the death of Christ, right? That when you're put under the water and you come out of the water, that represents Jesus's entombment. That is because he dies for you. And we, when we're buried there, are now reckoned as dead to our sinful nature before God. That there is a part of us that we are no longer identified with because it is dead and gone, just like um, the body of Jesus in the tomb. And lastly, baptismal glory says, you know, I'm not just a part of the food chain. I'm not just a carbon cycle. I'm more than cells. There's something about me that will live eternally because just as I'm brought out of that water and that represents Jesus's resurrection, I share in that resurrection. I have that future hope of resurrection glorification because of the effective labors of Jesus. And so friends, when we see baptisms tonight, look at these people. Stare at these people, stare at this water, um, and realize the gift that is for them, but also for you, and see the flashes of glory that reflect to you, that Jesus is coming for you, that he is reminding you tonight that he makes all things new, he comes from the glory, shines with the glory to bring you to glory, and his heaven will certainly have no boring postcards. Amen. They could not.